Hello, John Schuler. Hello, Brandon Gore. How are you doing on this beautiful day? <laughs> well, since you just told me I was all over the place, I'm doing fantastic, and I got to get more in line. So. I'm glad to hear it. Before we get in line, I just want to tell you, I just watched the uh, latest episode of The Last of Us, and I love the show, but if anybody's seen the last episode, it's absolutely ludicrous that you'd be driving across the country after a zombie apocalypse, and you see a massive city, and you think, I want to go right through the middle of that. Yeah, right through the You're going to go around it. Nobody's going through the middle of the city. We all know this. So if the writers of The Last of Us are listening, which I assume they are, please don't do any more of these uh, you know, fantasy storylines. Get back to what people actually do. We all know. You're going to go around the city. You're not going to go through the city. Yeah, you're going to go through small towns. Yeah, or There's no, no towns. There's no question about it. You're, you're going to circumvent avoid... every town you yeah. can. <laughs> Absolutely. There's no question about it. Yeah. It makes no sense. Yeah. Okay, so let's get to concrete. You want to talk concrete? Let's talk concrete. All right, so a topic of conversation that came up on one of the Facebook groups, which is interesting, it's, it's a timely conversation, is um, the soon-to-be kind of national and international adoption of a Portland limestone blended cement where essentially they're taking ground limestone dust mm -hmm. and diluting Portland cement by 5 to 15% in, in Europe. I think I read... Alice said they would go up to 35% or somebody said that. Yeah, about double that, yeah. Yeah, but uh, in the U.S., 5 to 15% dilution. And in doing so, the theory is they're going to reduce the carbon output, the CO2 of the production of cement by using less Portland cement and replacing it with a ground uh, limestone. That's the thought process. But right. there's, you know, I mean, there's the political aspect of it. Is that true? I know your opinion is that in the production of grinding limestone, you're still creating CO2. So is it really offsetting what they think it is? Probably not. And then another part of it is a carbon tax. If they don't do it, there's a carbon tax. Where does that money go? How's it used? Right. It just seems more like a cash grab than anything. Right. But instead of going down to the political aspect of it, let's talk about the actual repercussions for people in the industry. What are the repercussions of blending Portland cement and limestone dust together? What, what, can that create to the end mix you mean yeah to like guys like me and you like you know we're, we're sure. used to portland cement type one two right now but in a year that might be hard to get and so now you're using this you know plc portland limestone cement right. how's that going to affect you well i've been working with this stuff for about a year year and a half the i was anybody get ready the, the first things you're going to notice is your workability is going to completely change and i say completely because it, um, I don't know how to describe it. I wouldn't call it wetter, but it definitely has a higher propensity for bleed water. It's hard to control. Um, plasticizers load, not just plastic, which plasticizers are going to be effective is undeniably going to change. So there, there's a lot of things down the road that need to be altered in advance before this stuff completely hits, let's say, hits the market for everything. I'm not going to tell people doing scratch mixes, just get ready. You know, you're going to, and we know this, sorry, you know, I jump around now. I'm sorry. Anybody who wants to jump on the, is it the ICT or the Kodiak? I can't remember, but there's quite a few people that have been putting input related to using, I think the other ones, you know, the gray, right? Goal. And it's, it's been catastrophic for them in the changes. I've gotten a lot of, you know, tech support related to those particular people who are trying to modify their mixes to accommodate. And it's been, it's been a real problem. You know, I think from an industrial point of view, you know, again, you know, I'm, I hate to like make it like, uh, it's not that big a deal, but you know, are your retaining walls going to go sideways? Mm, no, not so much. You know, is your driveway slabs going to have problems? I don't know. You know, or though is uh, your house slab not going to hold your walls up anymore? Yeah, I doubt that. But for us in the decorative end, this is a, I mean, this is a big deal, but you know, we're a very, very, very small, you know what I mean? We're, we're, you know, less than one fly on the on the back of this industrial market. So for us, it is, it's, it's going to be a big deal. I've been working with this for a while now, making changes along the way to, you know, hopefully stay in front of it right now. I've been staying in front of it. 
But uh, yeah, it's going to be some big changes. I read, I don't know if it's true, but I read that cement manufacturers have been doing this to some extent for some time now, adding limestone, essentially limestone dust to the Portland cement in small quantities uh, for the last few years. Is that true? Well, some have, but I think that might be construed with, as of right now, just in general, you know, most, most Portland cements already have somewhere around, you know, five, 6% limestone in the manufacturing process already. Yeah. So, I mean, that's just, that's, that's just kind of a common thing that's part of the process itself. So, and what they're looking at is increasing that amount much further. Like I said, in the U S I think you said about 15% is where they see, you know, the drop off potential in strength and so forth, depending on the manufacturing gotcha. process. Gotcha. Yeah. That makes sense. So changes are coming. We're going to try to stay in front of it, but if um, you make your own mix, you're going to have to make adjustments is what you're saying. Oh, no question about it. Yeah. yeah no question about it. I mean, it, and like I said, I, across the board, since, you know, I guess it's like anything else, you know, if, if, I can't think of another analogy, but if you're building cabinets and the number one material that you use is wood to start off with, well, you know, if that has to change, everything in your process changes from there down the line between, you know, what paints are used, what screws will hold it together, hinges, you know, so that's where we're at. I mean, this is the binder holding it together. So everything down the line, your you know, your, your sands are going to change. Meaning like, you know, what your blending of sands going to change to compensate what plasticizers are now going to be effective or not effective or too effective and causing bleed water and, um, pigment float. And, you know, all these things are, are coming very quickly. No question. Because like, I think the deadline is, I don't know, sometime this year, that's what I know. I think 2023, What's the deadline to make these changes? Let me check my calendar. Oh, shit. It's 2023. Yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, I just said, you know, so be aware of it. It's, um, it is what it is. It is so what it is. Everybody's changing. Modifications are going to need to be made. So it, the one thing I would just encourage, I think we've said this is another situation where experience you know, and where you're getting the materials from, from experienced people, it really is going to make a difference so that it doesn't come at you sideways. Like for some people it already has when they had, you know, been forced to make a direct change and they're having a real difficulty compensating. So onto the next topic, you know, the good thing about these Facebook groups is they are a great treasure trove of topics. There's so many conversations going on in there that, uh, that are interesting, and then it's nice to, to have a conversation about it on the podcast. One of them that, that popped up was, um, I'm trying to remember exactly how the comment was made. Uh, somebody was wanting to do a false edge, a drop edge on a countertop, and they wanted to block out the center of the, the piece, which is common. You know, mm -hmm. if I'm doing a five-inch thick edge, I'm not going to cast it five inches solid. So I'll do five inch edge and I'll do one inch in the middle because five inch solid would be crazy. But this person was doing an inch and a half countertop. In, in my experience, in the way I've been doing it for a long time now, is I just pour SCC GFRC directly into the form. I don't spray face coat and I just pour it solid. I've, you know, done it in the past where I'd block out the back. I'd have to sink foam in. I have to build essentially a support structure to hold it flat, keep it from floating, keep it from bowing. And by the time I did all that stuff and, you know, foam has gone up in price and two by fours and everything else. But after I did all that stuff, what was I saving? Well, I was saving, you know, normal kitchen, three, four, five bags mix, but I was adding hours of time to the process. And so we start kind of doing the, the math problem of what's my time worth and what does this actually cost to me? And so that's, that's actually how this conversation came up was I posted my view on it is I like to post it or, uh, I like to, uh, uh, cast it solid and save that time. And then when I go to install it, I'm not worried about that. I miss a section because also you need to be inch and a half anywhere. There's a cabinet wall. So it supports the countertops. It's not floating. So there's a lot of things you have to kind of take into account when you're trying to block out the back that if you just pour it solid, you don't need to account for. You can just set it on the, the cabinets and you're good. 
so I kind of posted that, and then uh, somebody responded back, like, well, of course you're going to say that. You sell materials. You're trying to sell more materials. And it's like, well, no, dude. I mean, I've been doing mm-hmm. it like this for 15 yeah. years, long before I sold materials, and it's because I did the, the math back in the day on what's this costing me in time. And so time is one of these things we've talked about on past podcasts, but it's been a while, and I think it's an important topic to discuss because it's probably the one part of the business that concrete business owners totally missed the boat on. Oh, not probably. Well, no. definitely. And I'm yeah, guilty we of it have myself. these conversations, yeah, tech support and everything. And it's just amazing to me. But it, you know, I know I say this one, like, all of us in a business, if you're running a business to be successful, the difficulty all along this path, which you very well know, is how we actually put whether that be a number, whether we use the word value, whatever it is on this mysterious thing called time. How long we're in the shop? How many, how long did that take us? Like, oh, no big deal. Because we truly know what the cost of that, what sheet of melamine is. We truly know each month when we pay our lease payment or whatever the case may be. But Somehow that difficulty, not for everybody, but it takes us a long time to get smacked in the face that go, <clears throat> dang, man, I spent five hours on something. Like, was that really worth 500 bucks? Assuming, you know, I, I charging myself as five on a on hundred bucks an hour. But anyway, sorry, go ahead. Well, that's the thing is I, you know, so, uh, the person made this comment, you know, that's, that's their thing. And I responded back like, well, I've been doing this for 15 years. And I kind of broke it down, broke down the math. Like, let's say normal 60 foot kitchen, and you're going to reduce by five and a half bags, but you're going to add a hundred dollars materials and foam and two by fours and everything else back into it to block out the back. So at the end of the day, you're saving overall 120 bucks, but you're adding two and a half hours to the process. So is that two and a half hours worth 120 bucks? And there was a time 20 years ago when it was. You know, 20 years ago, I used to sleep on the tables in my shop half the time. I didn't have a reason to go back to my apartment. I had a couple of house plants. Eh, I could water them once a week. I had a dog. She was with me at the shop. I wasn't married. My girlfriend was cool. She didn't care if I worked five days straight. And so it was one of those things like, yeah, you know, I'll, I'll put two and a half hours towards saving 120 bucks. Today, I have three little kids. So is it worth me to be in my shop two and a half extra hours I'm not making any more money on the project for that two and a half hours. Is it worth it in the shop for two and a half hours to save $120? I'd say, no, it's not, not for me. And the other part of this that is missed is a lot of concrete guys think in the terms of employee mentality, meaning I pay my guy who's probably just out of high school, 20 bucks an hour. So my time's worth 20 bucks an hour. Wrong brother. Your time is worth mm-hmm. far more than 20 bucks an hour. You own the business. I mean, you pay yep. rent, utilities, insurance, cost of goods sold, taxes. You need to make profit. Uh, your time is worth far, far more. And I've done the math on my own company. And every company is different. We talked about how to come up with some of these numbers. A guy named Sean Van Dyke has a great book called Profit First for Contractors. Everybody should buy that book. I highly recommend it. <clears throat> but going to the exercise of finding out where you need to be, what's your margin, what's your markup, blah, 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 blah. But for me... Me personally, at my shop that, that I had in Eureka Springs, for every hour, I need to value my time at 325 an hour. That's where I need to be to make all the numbers fit together, right? Now, if you're working someplace else and you have a two-car garage and you know your wife is a doctor and she pays all the bills and you don't really have to make any money, well, you don't need to make 325 an hour because you have a different economic circumstance, but mm-hmm. that was the number I needed to make. So if I valued my time at 20 bucks an hour, I'd be screwed. I'd be really screwed. So let's say I value my time at 325 an hour. And I have two and a half hours into it. Well, you know, I don't have my calculator out, but that's like 800 some bucks that that's costing me in time if I value my time at what it should be valued at. So at that point, I'm, I'm losing money by trying to save money on materials. Now, the only place, and you and I had this conversation earlier, we were talking before we did the podcast, the only place, the only solution or only um, situation, yeah, the yeah, only thing to actually think about, yeah. That would make it worth it is if you're trying to save weight. If you're trying Correct. to save weight, then you're like, okay, let me put in extra time and energy and materials 
as far as backer mold into building it because I need to save weight. And there's a, there's some circumstances, like I said, like a five inch edge where that makes sense. Oh, of course, I'm not going to pour that thing five inches solid. I will put in the time and energy to block that out. But on an inch and a half countertop, doesn't make any sense for me. And, you know, I was talking about Dusty Baker. Dusty Baker is a great example. Somebody does a lot of production of countertops, but weight is no longer an issue for Dusty because Dusty has moved to the point now he has equipment, whether it's a forklift or a gantry crane or a custom cart that he's built to flip, move, transport. He's not physically trying to carry in a 16-foot island top. So that's not the problem. The pro- and, you know, he has m- machinery on site when they unload it off the trailer to get it into the house. And then they roll it down and they flip it and they jack it, you know, jacks down to the countertop and they release the clamps and there you go. So the only benefit is if you're a smaller company, you don't have the, the equipment and weight is a concern, in my opinion. No, no, that's not opinion. That's an absolute fact. Um, and anybody who doesn't see that otherwise... Again, it's just, I hate to say not experienced, but then they just haven't legitimately put a value on their time. You know, as you were sitting there talking, I was actually sitting here running some math and it dawned on me the same. I just like, I pulled up my lease on my shop right now and the time, and this again, I'm going to say, these are things people don't talk, think about is in the time that you and me are sitting here doing this podcast, that's costing me. $15 $15 an hour. Just for the that's an overhead shop. expense. Yeah, yeah. And that's not the insurance and that's not the utilities and that's not right. The property so I'm just tax. saying that in of itself, when I'm working in the shop or outside the shop, if, if things aren't happening to accommodate that, like, Hey, I went to Disneyland. Well, that didn't change the fact that that week I was gone, <laughs> you know what I mean? Still cost me, you know, $500 in a lease payment. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's a, that's the hard thing. Cause in this case, as you're saying, the difference between, I don't know, let's say half three quarters of an inch and your inch and a half for, for, for anybody just to like, you know, you put a box mold down, you know what I mean? Cut your edge strips, I don't know, hot glue them down or whatever you're doing, screw them on, you know, whatever it is, mix up and direct cast something like that. You could be in and out in a very short period of time. Yeah, a couple hours. You know, even even if you were, I don't know, taking your time to do it. You know what I mean? Listening to some tunes and you know, I mean, just having a great time. But switch that up, and and again, I don't know. Let's just make this. Let's say the difference would be three bags. You know, three. So one hundred and fifty dollars in Maker Mix. Let's just use Maker Mix as the example. Like, okay, so 150 bucks and I don't know, again, let's just make this number up. I could see start to finish. I could probably knock something out like that in what, three and a half hours. I'll even say four hours, start to finish, right? Boom, boom, boom. All right. Now add another time for me to make the backer mold, which would be another sheet of malamine, hanging strips, you know, I'm going to pour three and then I'm going to set a backer mold, run my edges, lift them this and cut. And st- with that, if it saved me, you know, three bags of mix, but I added another three to four hours in time, I'm upside down in the project. If you value your time, if you're not, yeah, doing if, 20 if bucks you now. value yeah. your time. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I would be upside down by probably about $200, $250 in that time. Anyway, so yeah, so the only thing that would make that argument worth having to me in my shop running a business would be I'm a one-man operation. I don't have a gantry. You know what I mean? These kind of things. And I'm going to take it a step further. Or wherever this piece was going, maybe the cabinet height is already set You know, for the ultimate countertop height of 36 inches. And so they only gave me three quarters of an inch. So, I mean, these would be the limits I would put on that, which ultimately means I may have to charge more for the job. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Then, then thinking about a couple, three bags of material that, that would, that would be a ludicrous, ludicrous conversation in my opinion. 
I'd say anything inch and a half or less, I pour solid. Anything more than inch and a half, I start really thinking about doing a backer form. Because at that point, weight does become more of an issue. If I'm casting a two-inch countertop, sure. eh, well, then I'm going to sink a one-inch piece of foam into the back. So it's one-inch thick and then one-inch of foam. Right. So for me, the whole conversation revolved around inch and a half. And an inch and a half or less, I do solid. There's no point in trying to save time or materials. Oh, I know what you're saying. It was just a... Go ahead. I'm sorry. Well, say, but the other thing is, you know, I was writing that post back to the person, essentially explaining the economics of it. But I talked about, you know, for years and years, and I'm guilty of it, of stepping over dollars to pick up dimes. Stepping mm-hmm. over dollars to pick up dimes to try to save money. And one of the ways I did that for a lot of years was I would batch my own mix. So I would order from Buddy Rhodes Products Ultra Seals, and I would order a polymer, and I would order a plasticizer from Grace, and I'd order glass fibers from this company, and I'd order uh, sands from this company. And, you know, Federal White's not local, so I have to order Federal White from, from this company. And, all these different things, and then batch my own mix. And the batching process really took more time than when people are honest with themselves. It takes a lot more time than you think it does. In your mind, you're like, oh, dude, I can batch it out in 15 minutes. Yeah. No, you no. can't. No, you can't. By mm-hmm. the time you get into it, you start cutting these bags open. You're carrying a bag, sanding it over. You got your little scoop. You got hanging on your scale, you know, 23 and a half. Uh-uh, too much. Let me put it. Oh, I need another bag. And you're doing this whole thing. It's going to take you 30, 30, 45 minutes, an hour, hour and a half. I mean, I've had jobs where we have. 40 batches lined up in buckets, you know, so we have like 120 buckets in my shop because it's a big project and that's how it's batched out. So I did that for a long time. And I remember way back in the day, you were back with blue concrete and uh, you would try to talk to me about, you guys had a, a, a fully blended mix back then. Mm-hmm. And uh, you tried to talk to me about the economics of it. And I'm like, ah, oh, John, I got it. I got it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I don't need that. That's, that's wasted money. I can batch it myself because my time greedy. is free. You just got to be a greedy. Well, I didn't think you were greedy, but I just thought in my mind, because I didn't value my time, my time is free. Oh, I'm mm. in the business of being a concrete business. This is what I'm supposed to be doing. No, that's not what I'm supposed to be doing. I should have been doing client meetings. I should have been, you know, designing new products. I should have been doing marketing and sales. I should have been working on my website and doing photography. I should have been doing a lot of things besides weighing out buckets of cement and sand. But I didn't see it that way back then. I was right. stepping over dollars to pick up dimes. And so it was one of those things that you tried to talk to me about the economics of it back then, and I didn't want to hear it. And it's like, you're totally wrong. And then in time, when I moved to Eureka Springs, well, things were a lot harder to get than it was when I was in Phoenix. Then it became more of a problem, and it cost me more time and more money to try to source ingredients. And at that point, when things went sideways with our previous supplier materials, and I had to start my own thing, Kodiak Pro, and then at you know some point you joined the company, and we really took it to the next level. You know, we sell an Admix, Radmix. I don't use Radmix. I personally mm-hmm. only use maker mix for everything because of the time savings, because I can just cut open a bag, dump it in a mixer, add the water, add the TBP, and it's done. And it took me 20 years of doing it the hard way, 20 years of, you know, wasting time and ultimately money because my, my time had value to finally realize, dude, what am I doing? What am I doing? I'm not saving anything. I'm spending money, but it took that long. So I get where, you know, when people make these comments, I get it because I was one of those people making that comment for a long time. And I dug my heels in and I said, no, 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 I'm going to save $5, you know, but I'm going to waste an hour doing it. I did the same thing years ago when I had to be talked into it myself. <clears throat> I was doing the same. And I know we've talked about this podcast, but, you know, I, I had to travel hour and 30 minutes each way to pick up my federal white. I'm an angel's camp. So I, I same ordered in my sands by the pallet would come in. When I sat down and actually ran the numbers, the true numbers, and I, and, and I, when I say true, I didn't even include overhead, right? Because three X amount of inventory sitting on my shop floor that could have been better utilized for, I mean, now I know that better utilized for other things. So I didn't even take that into account. I just broke the materials down. What did it cost me? The shipping, so forth and so on. And once I added it up, I'm like, good Lord, man. I, I mean, I, I'm actually at that time, that long ago, if I broke it down to a per 50 pound fully blended thing, I was spending about five to $10 per more 50 pound blend by just ordering all the materials myself. And then, and then I didn't even actually include total labor time 
in the weighing of the materials and these kind of things. So well, th- these conversations go sideways. Why your time is no, free. I, I, I was in the same man. Your time I mean, is free. Yeah. My kids were young. Same thing. They were young at the time. Aim wasn't working. So she was the, you know, the stay at home. So me being at the shop for 12 hours and time to come home and, you know, have dinner and spend a few hours and leave first thing in the morning. <clears throat> it was a very common practice. I would say it was almost a badge of honor. You know what I mean? It was almost like, you know, hey, you know, I'm the dad, I'm the supporter. Look at me, I'm a hard worker. And once my kids started those ages of preschool, grammar school, and I felt like I was missing all the little memories, if that makes sense. Like, wait a minute, man, what am I doing? This is crazy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I started first turning down jobs because I didn't want to be busy that much. And then ultimately like, no, just stop all this hocus pocus. It's actually costing you more and you're missing out on a lot of stuff. So as we talked about, then things changed to me being one of the only dads at various events, uh, with aim too. So you'd say one of the only full couples at events where everybody else might be, you know, just the mom or and these kind of things. And it's made a, for me, it's made a dramatic difference knowing full well, this is a one shot rodeo. I made a post about that a while back and people, you know, made jokes about it, about me wanting to be off in time to get my girls from school. But that's an important thing to me. I want to be there when I get out of school. I want to be the one to pick them up. And, um, you know, priorities, some people that's not a priority to them. That's fine. We all have different priorities, but for Mm -hmm. me, it is a priority. And, uh, so that's, I want to build my life around that, about being there for, for my family, because yeah, you're right. This is it, dude. When, you know, when they go off to college and, you know, go on, you're gonna look back and be like, what was I doing? I was weighing out buckets of sand and cement. That's what I was doing. And I know that's, I know there's families out there that do that, but it's funny you and I are having the, now we're going this way. We had this conversation when you called me this morning and I was like, Hey man, just a heads up, you know, my, uh, again, let's talk the, the Schuler family dynamics at the moment. Today's a minimum day. My daughter just started tennis practice. So I'm going to go down. I need to pick my son up by just after 12 o'clock. And Sean, We're both when I, when I called by. you, what was I doing? <clears throat> oh, you walk here in the background. You're having breakfast. No, no. I dropped kids. my girls off from school. I was driving back home. Oh, that's what it was. Okay. Yeah. I was going to say, I heard the kids going. Yeah. So, yeah. So here I am. It's like, yeah. And I still have work to do at the shop. So yeah. when we're done talking, I'm going to go down. I'm going to spend, you know, a couple hours knocking out what I, because I've gotten very efficient at what I'm doing. I'm casting, boom, well, clean up, well, pick up my son. We're going to go to my daughter's practice for about 30 minutes. We're going to come home, grab a snack. And then my son has trap practice and, and I'm involved with it all and still running a business that's quite profitable and quite successful. Well, a long time ago. So when the market crashed in like 08 and everything went to hell, there was a time, I, I talked about it maybe on a past podcast, but there was a time I was homeless. Now, homeless isn't the right word because I wasn't living under a bridge or in my car, but I let my house go into foreclosure. I had bought a house for two fifty, dollars put 100000 into it, I was in it for three fifty. I called my realtor. She ran comps. She's like, 35000 is the best you could hope for right now. That's what they're selling for, which is crazy. I wish I had 35000 cash. I could have just let my house go to auction and bought it for 35,000 cash. Yeah, but right. <laughs> yeah. anyways, so let my house going to foreclosure and rentals had like gone to the roof because everybody had their houses going to foreclosure and everybody was trying to rent and you couldn't find a rental to save your life. And I had three dogs. And uh, so anyways, I built a loft at my shop and put like a, a Murphy bed up there and cabinets and a flat screen. And I moved into my shop. Nobody knew this. Like I kept it on the DL, right? But I moved into my shop and I thought that it was gonna be a tough time in my life. Uh, I thought I was going to be depressed, but I wasn't. I was actually super happy. Every day I'd go to the gym, I'd work out, I'd lay by the pool, they had a pool out there. I'd go to Jamba Juice, I'd get a green smoothie, uh, I'd go hiking, and I really loved it. And I had this epiphany that if I wanted to work less, I needed to work less. Yeah. Which is such a stupid thing to say, but it it took me going through all that to understand, like, if I want to work less, you don't work less by working more. We all get this thought in our head, well, I want to work less, but I need to come out with a new product line. I need to come out with this. I need to do that. I need to do this. Uh, I need to, I need to, you know, save money in materials so I can make more money. So I'm going to, I'm going to batch it all out. No, you're working more. So the only way to work less is work less. And where I'm going with this is 
by changing to a pre-blended product. And we sell an ad mix, guys. We're not trying to talk right. you how to use an ad mix. I'm no. just talking about my own personal experience of running a business. If I want to work less, I need to work less. And one of the primary ways I do that with the concrete business is I don't spend a tremendous amount of time sourcing, securing, procuring materials, then batching those materials, then having recast because you know, my helper or even myself got distracted with something and missed an ingredient or doubled an ingredient and the the piece doesn't turn out the way we expected it to. If you want to work less, you work less. And you do that by cutting your time. And time is the most valuable thing you have. I promise you. I get, you know, I've been doing this for 20 years. 20 years ago, I was in my my 20s. I thought, you know, you're going to live forever. Well, now I'm in my mid-40s. And you're in your 50s. And we're not going to live forever. And as time goes on, you start to value your time more and more and more and more. And that's where I'm at now with my life is I value my time. I've done the math. I know what I need to be making with my time every day to run my business as it needs to be run to be profitable. If you're not profitable as a business, you're a hobby. That's fine. Hobbies are great. But if you want to be a business, you have to turn a profit. And if you want to turn a profit, you have to value your time at an appropriate rate to be profitable. Mm -hmm. So. Well, I think this goes to last week's podcast when I read a comment by somebody that, you know, the the mix and the sealers will not make you successful, <clears throat> your business successful. Yeah. And I, I can't, I just can't stress how much over the years I have found that that particular comment just doesn't hold water for me at all. And, and I think, and I shouldn't say, I think I've literally had over the last week or so, since the last podcast, actually, some guys call me, people that, you know, we, we chat quite often and they initially kind of put their back in like, are you telling me if, because I'm not using this, that I'm not successful. And I'm like, no, that that's again, I guess it, once again, it just depends on where a person decides what success and successful means for you. So if your business is making something nice and you enjoy it and maybe it's even make it a profit that you're happy with. I'm totally okay with that. And whatever you're using to accomplish that, Hey, I think that's awesome. So none of us are here to say, you know, but for me personally, I found that my overall business and life became more successful when I quit chasing the things that was making my time unprofitable. Does that make sense? Dude, so the people that make these comments, largely, and I'd really encourage everybody listening to this podcast, be careful who you take your advice from. If you want to learn and if you want to get advice on how to run a successful business, look to people that run successful businesses, and not just for a few years, but for a long time you know, that have gone through the ups and downs of the economy and, and market swings and whatnot. That's going to be the telltale sign like, oh, okay, well, maybe they actually know what they're, they're doing. Uh, but some of these people well, make these comments. And, and just interject, I'm sorry. But when, we, when you say successful, I just, per some of the phone calls, we're not just talking, did you make money? You know, did you keep your doors open? To me, being successful goes further into the idea that, that my business is not running me. Oh, yeah. That's part of my success. Yeah. Yeah. If you're not enjoying what you're doing, you're not successful. Correct. That's not yeah. A success. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I guess that's what I was trying to get, you know, per the, per the phone calls and the chats that I've had for the last week or so, like I said, there, you know, some of it can be misconstrued and uh, about what success or being successful means for somebody else. And to me, it means much further than just your bottom line or that you made a vanity and you made two, you know, 1500 bucks on this one sole project or several project. It goes even further as and accommodating your overall life. And I get, and I know you said this, but I think that's something that, other people, if you haven't been in this game as long as somebody else over the 20 plus years of like me going to the shop after you and I are done chatting here today and being successful, generally speaking, both in business and life, it's easy to, like we said, you know, sell another ad mixture or even give advice 
on being successful when you haven't been successful. Yeah. Well, that's, that's the point I was going to make, John, is the people that are making these comments, if you look at, at what they do for a living, they don't do this. They don't do the nuts and bolts of running a concrete business. Those people are in the business of selling you their take on how to do it, but it's just a hypothesis. It's just theory because they don't, they don't actually do it. And so to me, that information and that opinion don't hold much weight. Um, you're free to listen whenever you want to, obviously. I mean, you can take advice from whoever you want to right. take advice. But, I mean, to me, that's equivalent to going to a baker or a massage therapist or an accountant and saying, hey, how do you run a successful concrete business? Well, here's the way I've always done it. Well, you haven't done it. It doesn't matter, young man. Just listen. This is the way I've always done it. And they give you their advice. And that's, to me, the same thing. So there's there's a lot of that out there. And, you know, well, the, no. well, the other thing you on, said that's funny is people get get yeah, their yeah. hackles all riled up. If we're saying like, hey, we developed this really innovative mix that will make your life easier, I'm not saying what you're doing is bad. I never said what you're doing is bad. I'm saying, here's a product that if you try it and you have a frame of reference or perspective, you might actually say, damn, you're right. Like, this is insanely good. All we're saying is give it a shot, whatever that is. Give it a shot. And, and by us saying, like, this is a great new product we came out with, we're not putting you down. And if we're saying yeah. you need to be successful to run a business, we're not saying, I, I don't know. I, I think people just tend to take it personal in a negative way. And that's not what I'm saying. But, you know, I become very pragmatic in time about what a business is. And a business at the end of the day has to turn a profit. Yeah. I, you know, my, my bank isn't going to take my, uh, you know, warm wishes and prayers for my, my mortgage payment. Brother, you got to pay us. Like, you need to send us money. That's what we accept. We don't take thoughts and prayers. We need money. That's what the bank's going to say. You know, Ram isn't going to take uh, well wishes and good vibes for my truck payment. They want money. And so to do that, you have to run a successful business. And to run a successful business, you need to charge for your time accordingly. You need to use products that aren't going to cause problems, aren't going to have to go out and recast, that the sealer's not going to peel off, that the concrete's not going to crack, the concrete's not going to turn white. These are things that are directly affecting your bottom line and your ability to run a profitable business that generates income for you and your family and your livelihood. And that's what we're talking about. Yeah. And I, just to add to that, I, I am a believer. There are suppliers out there with, with some, some good products. I don't have a problem saying that. Along that same category, though, I'll just continue to say that the materials that we support have been directly designed around the businesses that we work in. So that, you know, back to our original conversation of the Portland cement, I get where the cement manufacturers are coming from. And here's my analogy to that. So I get it. But what they're not, they, they have definitely not consulted anybody on this end, or, and neither has the governments, what that mean about carbon footprint, to say, hey, how is this going to directly impact the quality of what you're doing? And, and I guess that's what I'm trying to convey here is, and I think most people know this, is anything that's gone into the innovation at this point and will continue to go into the innovation at this point is always an absolute direct reflection of whatever big or small solution that 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 we're trying to get fixed in running our businesses rather than just trying to make another piece of the puzzle fit in another spot and that that's just different i'm not going to say it's better worse it's different i believe it's better because it's working for me but um and here was my analogy. I started thinking about this other day, you know, when I was, I was talking to my son. So my son at the moment, you know, is enjoying his game Call of Duty, right? And, you know, we laugh and, and I play it with him sometimes. And, you know, anyway, he's getting pretty good at Call of Duty. But at no point does my son sit down with my brother who is you know, a ranger in the army and all this stuff, and somehow tell my brother how to be a better soldier or what his take is because he's gotten very good at Call of Duty on what his take is to my brother of what how to be a better soldier. And, and that's kind of what I see out there as the analogy sometimes with the people putting out the information. 
they're, they may be fantastic armchair warriors, but they're not actually in the mix to, to, in my opinion, really back their information with legitimate hands-on experienced information. So they're not stealing souls? That for what it is. They're not stealing souls? What's that? Is that what you're saying? Armchair warriors aren't stealing souls, John? You need to be out in the field? Yeah. That's, uh, right. that's Again, I, that's all I'm going to say, you know, and take it for what it is. That doesn't make them bad. And again, I think you've said this many times and I agree with it. That, that doesn't mean, you know, anything's done out there, you know, to hurt anybody. I, I still believe people mean the best out of what they're doing, but I don't know. Okay. So next thing on my list of topics, which I would say would probably be the, the last thing that we talk about today is transport. That was another interesting conversation that came up on one of these groups. Somebody that got on there and they said, hey, I need to transport concrete. Tell me what I need to do. Go, go, tell me. And there was an avalanche of comments. Some of, them, some of them I thought were good advice. Some of them I thought were bad advice. And, uh, and that's the mixed bag. When you get on, on Facebook and you ask for advice, you're going to get a mixed bag of good and bad. And the problem is if you're asking for advice, you probably don't know which is good and which is bad because you're asking. So you don't know. And that's okay. And what was he transporting? Like, like countertops. Countertops? Yeah. Oh, okay. yeah. So, you know, Martin Haddock got on there and said, build an A-frame. And then, yeah, A-frame. You know, yeah, other people got on there and said, you know, like, do this, do yep. that. But a couple people, one guy got on there and said that he went to a used mattress store and bought four used mattresses, which is disgusting. I would never buy a used mattress. <laughs> but bought four <laughs> used mattresses for 400 bucks, which I think he got ripped off. If you paid 400 bucks for four used mattresses, I think he paid $400 too much. They usually just throw those things away. But bought four used mattresses and just lays the mattresses on his trailer and then puts the concrete on it. And I guess puts another mattress, another piece of concrete, another mattress, another piece of concrete and drives down the road. Oh, he had to be making a job. I don't think he was, dude, because somebody else said they got foam and just put it flat on the trailer and laid it flat. Another guy said he just leaves it strapped to a to a table flat. Mm. And again, you might get away with it 80% of the time doing that. But the problem with it being flat is when you hit a bump and it wants to bounce and you have it strapped down on the ends or in the middle or whatever, an object in motion wants to stay in motion. And so it's flat and it's not strong. It's only inch and a half thick or inch thick or whatever it is. And it has all that momentum and it'll want to try to try to move and it'll break. Whereas you had an edge. So now it's you know 24 inches tall, one inch wide, but it's 24 inches tall and it bounces up and down. There's 24 inches of concrete to resist that force. And it's much, much, much stronger to yeah. take on the forces. The easiest yeah, thing much to do, like glass, right? You don't see that. any. Yeah, you don't see anybody delivering windows or or mirrors or any of that kind of stuff laid flat. You know, flat. Yeah. yeah. I think <laughs> they probably something. did in the very beginning. You know, back in whatever 1822, uh, Abel loaded a glass plate, you know, window on the back of his Abel. wagon. And uh, started trotting across town and hit a little pebble, and that glass broke. And he's like, damn it. He's like, we're not doing that again. Let's put it up on edge. And ever since then, people have been transporting things that are fragile on Mm -hmm. edge. Now, the only time I would do that is if it was a nearly three-dimensional something. Yeah. Like, like, and, and this goes back to our conversation just for a second on the whole you know, your labor and material. So we, I just finished a vanity and it was, uh, seven inches, seven inch drop face. So, you know, wanted to have that very brutal, large kind of thing. So to me with that one, and I didn't bring it up then, could I cast it at seven inches thick with, you know, with an integral sink and so forth? Eh, sure I could, but my God, that would be just a, you know, a animal to carry around. But in this case, those edges would act like beams. And I think it was four feet. So that's something I'm comfortable putting cushion down in the, in the back of my pickup and, you know, still strap it down. But, you know, that one I would have no problem. But if I did that with a straight six foot flat piece, I agree with you. Maybe I get a run, you know, maybe I got away with it and it wasn't an issue. But it's that one time that I showed up and said, all right, I'm ready to install and I got to crack of some sort. Okay, that was dumb. <laughs> Just put it on the A-frame. Well, you know, you, know you, you learn that lesson once, hopefully, and then you don't do it again. I learned a lot of lessons with transport that were all learned the hard way. Uh, with crating, with transporting myself. One time, I did a countertop. 
this is way back in the day. Back, you know, in the beginning, you don't know how to do anything. And uh, I didn't know how to properly transport a countertop. I did have an A-frame cart uh, welded up by a company, and I took clamps because I looked like what the granite guys were doing, and I just clamped it mm. to the A-frame. There's this big curved GFRC piece that had red glass in it for an architect, and it was in two pieces. This is before I did GFRC. So I couldn't do it one piece back then. It was in two pieces. Had a curved seam, like an S-shaped seam. I didn't design it. Architect did. But it looked like an airplane wing. Anyways, so I had these two pieces. Lower, one piece was lower on the cart. The other piece was on the high part of the cart. And I just clamped them with, uh, with sliding uh, bar clamps. And then I you know, strapped the, the uh, cart to my trailer. I was driving down the road. And I'm like looking. And my trailer was like a low-sided flatbed. I'm like looking in the in the mirror and I just see that top countertop fall off the trailer, like or off the A-frame. There's like a, a, a Honda Civic next to me, like right next to me. I'm going like 50 miles an hour down the, the highway in Phoenix. There's a Civic right there. I mean, it could have easily just fell and hit the damn Civic. It mm. didn't. It fell and hit the side of my trailer and fell back into the trailer, right? But when I show up on a job site, I get out and I look at it. I'm like, uh, it's busted, it's broken. You know, so the architect is there and he's like, you know, just install the other piece and then remake that piece. I should have known better, but I didn't. So I install the other piece, you know, glue it down with silicone, set it. And I still had the templates. I had the S thing. So I go back, you cast again, different color. Different, yeah. That's Aggregate right. looks different. Everything looks different. It's like charcoal with red glass. It doesn't match up. I bring it in, the seam doesn't match perfectly. And that starts the whole process of, and then I tried it again. It didn't match the third time, because that was my third trip out there. And then finally, by that point, I started doing GFRC. I'm like, dude, I got this new process I'm doing GFRC. I'm just going to cast it in GFRC, and I did that. But the lesson learned for me with the transport was I just used bar clamps. I never have done that since. Just that one time, the vibration, they shook off. So now mm. I don't use bar clamps at all. Now I put foam blocks, and I strap around the cart itself. So it's strapped to the cart with ratchet straps and the foam blocks put pressure against it. So it's really pushing that piece hard against the cart. And, uh, and then I ratchet the cart down to the trailer. So the, the cart is secured separately and then the piece is secured to the cart, but I do it with ratchet straps and foam blocks. And I never had another problem since, but I learned that lesson once about just using clamps. And I've seen other guys do it. I see photos on Facebook and they're transporting something with just clamps and it'll work. Maybe it works 99 times out of a hundred, but that one time can cost you so much time and money. Yeah, I agree. I was just going to say, you know, we, we mentioned a frame, but I do the same, you know, on the, where the edge of the piece is, is going to set. Number one, I always try as a back edge, that back edge sits flat on foam blocks. Yeah. And then there's cushion on the a frame to begin with, yep. um, a at least or moving blankets or yeah. something. Yeah. And then at that point, yeah, everything's ratchet strap to be secure. Yeah. In multiple ratchet mm-hmm. straps. I'm not just right. counting on one or two. I have like five no. of them on there. One yeah, breaks, yeah. I got four more, right? So that's other thing is is uh, the cost to redo something. It's just so great. And it's just easier to transport. We don't sell carts. I have no stock in cart manufacturers. I'm just telling you, it's worth the time to do. I've made simple A-frames. I'll just take a wooden sawhorse, um, like Burrow brand, which is really popular on, on the West Coast, Burrow brand. And um, I'll just screw a piece of plywood to it and then a two by four along the bottom. And that'll be a simple A-frame to transport a slab in the back of my truck. I've done that numerous times yeah, or a sink simple. in the back of my truck when I didn't want to do my big metal A-frame that's heavy and it's a you know pain in the butt. I can just build this one really quick with some scrap material, put it in the back of my truck, and I have an A-frame. So it's definitely worth the time to do it. Anything else, John? No, I haven't done the Burroughs thing. Now you just got me thinking. That's a, That is a stupidly simple way of doing it. Yeah. Something quick and easy. Yeah. Put it together in five minutes, take it apart when you get back, you have your sawhorse back and done. there you go. Yeah. Yeah. yeah mm-hmm. I've done that so many times. If it's just a delivery, I, you know, in Phoenix, I stopped doing um, installation, but I did delivery. And if it's just a delivery of a sink, you know, to a homeowner, well, I'm not going to get my flatbed trailer, you know, and yeah, put right. a huge A-frame on it to transport a three-foot sink across town. So I'll just put this whole thing together, put it on there, put a strap on it and there you go. Cool. Yep. Cool. Now you got me thinking. Well, there you go. Because I actually have a, that's a uh, meeting tomorrow with those designers casting next week. And that would be a super simple solution. Yep. Yeah. I hadn't even thought about that one. Good one. Well, now you have. Yeah. 
little golden nugget for you, John. Thanks, man. You're welcome, buddy. I like it. You're welcome. Didn't, I don't know why I never thought about that before. <laughs> Duh. Every now and then, a blind squirrel finds a nut, right? Yeah, I found it. <laughs> <laughs> no, I found it. I just gave you the nut. So Thanks, now, man. Now Thanks. two blind squirrels have found a nut, apparently. So anyways, cool. Well, I think that's it. We've gone on over 50 minutes, so it's a good podcast. Cool. Well, to, to add in the very beginning of this, anybody interested, just be aware that we're working hard to stay in front of the whole cement thing, the um, the additions with the carbonates and so forth. And, PLC. Well, yeah. And, and to be honest with you, I think at the end of the day, based on at least what I'm seeing modifications that are happening on my end, I actually think the end result of our materials it will actually be increased. Yeah. To be, I mean, just being completely forthcoming with everybody. So I'm glad I got on it early though. So we weren't like caught in sideways, but yeah. So it's going to be some interesting times and, you know, save the planet or try to anyway. I'm all for that. Hey, Concrete Heroes Quest. We've had two more registrations for up to 16 people in that class. If you're interested, it's April 26th to the 29th, three and a half day workshop at Joe Bates Shop in Napa, California. It's going to be a really, really fun class. It's going to be a deep dive on how to essentially design and build a post-tension GFRC conference table using multiple methods of GFRC. So direct cast SEC, sprayed, hand laid up, possibly troweled. It really depends on the final design, but it's going to be a very in-depth class where our six-day class, which is a great class for a very wide swath of techniques and processes and philosophies and insights from three different trainers. It's a really good class. We only have two days each. And so we build really cool projects, but we can't go really, you know, no, we can't yeah. dig super deep on it. Or this one we can, because we're spending three and a half days just on this, this one very ambitious piece. So it's the uh, first time doing this class, new format, a lot of interest in it. Like I said, we had 16 registrations so far which is tremendous. If you want to get on that, go to ConcreteDesignSchool.com. You can register for that. And if you have any questions, email me or John, and we're happy to help you. Anything else, John? No, just that we got the uh, the master from the United Kingdom. They're both coming out for that. So That's I'm right. really excited to work hand in hand with Martin and Ashley. Yep, Martin and Ashley are going to be there. They're not Dr. included. Let's just turn it all over to him. Let him show us what to do. Yeah. I like that. I like that he's, too. Yeah, he's been pulling some, I mean, watching some of the stuff that he's making, man, is, is pretty amazing. Yeah. No, he's super talented. It's going to be great to have him there. So um, it'll be a fun class. I'm, I'm looking forward to it. Right on. Cool, buddy. All right. Until next week. All right. Next week. Adios, we'll talk to you later. Go.